Chapter Seventy Three of Middle March. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Red Abras. Middle March by George Eliot. Chapter Seventy Three. Pity the laden one. This wandering woe may visit you and me. When Lydgate had allayed Mrs. Bulstrode's anxiety by telling her that her husband had been seized with faintness at the meeting, but that he trusted soon to see him better and would call again the next day, unless she sent for him earlier, he went directly home, got on his horse, and rode three miles out of the town for the sake of being out of reach. He felt himself becoming violent and unreasonable, as if raging under the pain of stings. He was ready to curse the day on which he had come to Middlemarch. Everything that had happened to him there seemed a mere preparation for this hateful fatality, which had come as a blight on his honourable ambition, and must make even people who had only vulgar standards regard his reputation as irrevocably damaged. In such moments, a man can hardly escape being unloving. Lydgate thought of himself as the sufferer, and of others as the agents who had injured his lot. He had meant everything to turn out differently, and others had thrust themselves into his life and thwarted his purposes. His marriage seemed an unmitigated calamity, and he was afraid of going to Rosamond before he had vented himself in this solitary rage, lest the mere sight of her should exasperate him and make him behave unwarrantably. There are episodes in most men's lives in which their highest qualities can only cast a deterring shadow over the objects that fill their inward vision. Lydgate's tender-heartedness was present just then only as a dread, lest he should offend against it, not as an emotion that swayed him to tenderness. For he was very miserable. Only those who know the supremacy of the intellectual life, the life which has a seed of ennobling thought and purpose within it, can understand the grief of one who falls from that serene activity into the absorbing soul-wasting struggle with worldly annoyances. How was he to live on without vindicating himself among people who suspected him of baseness? How could he go silently away from Middlemarch as if he were retreating before a just condemnation? And yet how was he to set about vindicating himself? For that scene at the meeting which he had just witnessed, although it had told him no particulars, had been enough to make his own situation thoroughly clear to him. Bulstrode had been in dread of scandalous disclosures on the part of Raffles. Lydgate could now construct all the probabilities of the case. He was afraid of some betrayal in my hearing. All he wanted was to bind me to him by a strong obligation. That was why he passed on a sudden from hardness to liberality. And he may have tampered with the patient. He may have disobeyed my orders. I fear he did. But whether he did or not, the world believes that he somehow or other poisoned the man and that I winked at the crime. If I didn't help in it. And yet, 
and yet he may not be guilty of the last offence and it is just possible that the change towards me may have been a genuine relenting the effect of second thoughts such as he alleged what we call the just possible is sometimes true and the thing we find it easier to believe is grossly false in his last dealings with this man bulstrode may have kept his hands pure in spite of my suspicion to the contrary there was a benumbing cruelty in his position even if he renounced every other consideration than that of justifying himself if he met shrugs cold glances and avoidance as an accusation and made a public statement of all the facts as he knew them who would be convinced it would be playing the part of a fool to offer his own testimony on behalf of himself and say i did not take the money as a bribe the circumstances would always be stronger than his assertion and besides to come forward and tell everything about himself must include declarations about bulstrode which would darken the suspicions of others against him he must tell that he had not known of raffles existence when he first mentioned his pressing need of money to bulstrode and that he took the money innocently as a result of that communication not knowing that a new motive for the loan might have arisen on his being called into this man and after all the suspicion of bulstrode's motives might be unjust but then came the question whether he should have acted in precisely the same way if he had not taken the money certainly if raffles had continued alive and susceptible of further treatment when he arrived and he had then imagined any disobedience to his orders on the part of bulstrode he would have made a strict inquiry and if his conjecture had been verified he would have thrown up the case in spite of his recent heavy obligation but if he had not received any money if bulstrode had never revoked his cold recommendation of bankruptcy would he lydgate have abstained from all inquiry even on finding the man dead would the shrinking from an insult to bulstrode would the dubiousness of all medical treatment and the argument that his own treatment would pass for the wrong with most members of his profession have had just the same force or significance with him that was the uneasy corner of lydgate's consciousness while he was reviewing the facts and resisting all reproach if he had been independent this matter of a patient's treatment and the distinct rule that he must do or see done that which he believed best for the life committed to him would have been the point on which he would have been the sturdiest as it was he had rested in the consideration that disobedience to his orders however it might have arisen could not be considered a crime that in the dominant opinion obedience to his orders was just as likely to be fatal and that the affair was simply one of etiquette whereas again and again in his time of freedom he had denounced the perversion of pathological doubt into moral doubt and had said the purest experiment in treatment may still be conscientious my business is to take care of life and to do the best i can think of for it science is properly more scrupulous than dogma dogma gives a character to mistake but the very breath of science is a contest with mistake and must keep the conscience alive alas the scientific conscience had got into the debasing company of money obligation and selfish 
respects. Is there a medical man of them all in Middlemarch who would question himself as I do? said poor Lydgate, with a renewed outburst of rebellion against the oppression of his lot. And yet they will all feel warranted in making a wide space between me and them, as if I were a leper. My practice and my reputation are utterly damned, I can see that. Even if I could be cleared by valid evidence, it would make little difference to the blessed world here. I have been set down as tainted, and should be cheapened to them all the same. Already there had been abundant signs which had hitherto puzzled him, that just when he had been paying off his debts and cheerfully on his feet, the townsmen were avoiding him or looking strangely at him, and in two instances it came to his knowledge that patients of his had called in another practitioner. The reasons were too plain now. The general blackballing had begun. No wonder that in Lydgate's energetic nature the sense of a hopeless misconstruction easily turned into a dogged resistance. The scowl which occasionally showed itself on his square brow was not a meaningless accident. Already when he was re-entering the town after that ride taken in the first hours of stinging pain, he was setting his mind on remaining in Middlemarch in spite of the worst that could be done against him. He would not retreat before calumny, as if he submitted to it. He would face it to the utmost, and no act of his should show that he was afraid. It belonged to the generosity as well as defiant force of his nature that he resolved not to shrink from showing to the full his sense of obligation to Bullshrode. It was true that the association with this man had been fatal to him true that if he had had the thousand pounds still in his hands with all his debts unpaid, he would have returned the money to Bullshrode, and taken beggary rather than the rescue which had been sullied with the suspicion of a bribe. For he remembered he was one of the proudest among the sons of men. Nevertheless, he would not turn away from this crushed fellow-mortal whose aid he had used, and make a pitiful effort to get acquittal for himself by howling against another. I shall do as I think right, and explain to nobody. They will try to starve me out, but... He was going on with an obstinate resolve, but he was getting near home, and the thought of Rosamond urged itself again into that chief place from which it had been thrust by the agonized struggles of wounded honor and pride. How would Rosamond take it all? Here was another weight of chain to drag, and poor Lydgate was in a bad mood for bearing her dumb mastery. He had no impulse to tell her the trouble which must soon be common to them both. He preferred waiting for the incidental disclosure which events must soon bring about. End of chapter 73 Recording by Red Abras February 2008